Well, this episode, if you have insomnia, no, just kidding. For those of you that are really into finances, come on. For those of you that are, you geeked out as much as our guest Noah Healy, the two of you talking about market, blah 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 blah, and I'm sitting there going, "Yeah, okay." Starbucks. You might, you you might need to listen to. Uh, Bloomberg Radio for a year before you listen to this next episode. No, I'm just kidding. Um, Mr. Healy was a really generous guest in terms of what he shared with us. He answered our pedestrian level questions about um, complex math theory and economic structures. And even when we got down to the later in the show and we started asking him personal questions, he was really forthcoming without any reservation, and I really respect him for the way he's developed himself, the investment he's made into understanding mathematics and markets and algorithms, and then he put all of that effort into something that he thinks is going to help free us all, which is really commendable. So this show is very revealing. Yeah, and I would say um, I was very, you know what I'm left with, with the whole personal thing when you dove into that. And he had this, it wasn't a dismissal, but what it was is like, oh, I'm in the presence of one of those people whose whole being is mathematics. And it's all like up here, which it was an honor that someone of that aptitude and level of thought process in systems and algorithms, et cetera, would spend an hour plus with a dummy like me. And I'm me. not going to include you in that dummy thing. Oh, and, no, no, no. Oh, I, yeah, there you were. with your, I knew the buzzwords. <laughs> dropped <laughs> enough dictionary things to make yourself sound smart. All right. And there's a trick for you all. Just get a thesaurus and you'll have a great conversation with an academic eyebrow. And, and he was really generous. Like he really, what he's built is designed to help us all level the playing field in the economic arena. And that's not to be missed. And I really did learn a lot, enjoyed my time with him. That's you wrong. Too. Six or no? Eleven, 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 eleven. Two outlaws on the lamb, taking the back roads through America. You can't drink enough coffee for this show. And now it's time for Monday Madness with the Moped Outlaws, Greg and Mark. All right. Welcome to another episode of Moped Outlaws. Crack open a bottle of Adrenocone Cola and settle in for the ride. You're here with Mark Went, Greg Wilker, and our special guest today, Noah Healy. Welcome, Noah. It's great to have you. When we were reading about you, we were going, oh, this is going to be a fun conversation. Yeah. And awesome. I, I want to say partly it's going to be fun because it's a realm of interest that I've always had. And I have no knowledge of. I'm just a total idiot in this area. Yeah. Okay. Um, I want to start with 
your company that you founded around a patent that you built. Can you explain a little bit about what you're up to and what that patent is? Uh, sure. So I'm working on upgrading how marketplaces actually operate. And that patent is on the processes and procedures that would allow price discovery to function uh, within these more effective marketplaces. And by markets, you mean securities markets? Uh, so the financial markets in general, yes, uh, but I, I'm dealing with a subset of existing financial markets. I'm dealing with those that uh, have a distinct group of producers and consumers. And so uh, some securities like equities aren't a good fit. Other securities, uh, for example, most countries and most blue chip companies don't rebuy their own bonds. And so the sort of selling market of bonds works very much like uh, the kinds of markets that I'm talking about. Some kinds of currency trades aren't appropriate. Some kinds of currency trades are appropriate. Um, and then uh, the commodity marketplaces, virtually every physical commodity is produced uh, in order to be used by somebody else. And those are a good fit for the um, patented element that you created. Uh, let, me, let me specify there, the patent's not a done deal yet. Uh, they've accepted it twice, but they've rejected both of their own acceptances for increasingly insane reasons. And uh, I'm going to have my day in court uh that's uh the patent board um isn't isn't a real a real court it's a it's a still an executive body but uh that has been scheduled for the summer of 2025 got it so you have a bit to wait to see if um your uh, massive threat to the regulatory agencies and the financial system is kept under wraps yes yes we now, wait, 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 because I have a question. Like, do you do? Gosh, darn it. Sorry, my dog is uh, chiming in. Just but, um My mind immediately goes to a conspiracy element of the big boys are trying to lock you out of something you found. Well, before we go there, Greg, let's get like a handle on what it is that he, he shifts. Like, what does it mean to change the market price or get at the actual market price. Explain that for the layman. Sure. Um, so the, the way the marketplace presently works is uh, essentially there's, there's two sides, the buyers and the sellers, and both sides are put in a big line. So if you want to buy IBM or corn or, or, you know, us debt, uh, you get in the, I want to be a buyer line and, the, your position in the line is dependent on when you get there, but you can skip ahead by offering better prices than the people in front of you. So the front of the line is made out of people that got there first with the highest price to buy. And then there's another line of people that want to sell. And the front of that line is made up of the people that got there first with the lowest price they'll accept for selling. And if the front of those two lines have are capable of making deals the market says well you guys want to buy for as much as you guys want to sell for so bam there you go you've got a contract you just bought what he's selling you just sold what he's buying 
Wait, what's so the you... impact that your wait, software... Wait, wait, before we go there... No, I want to just get the lay of the land. Just wait a second, all right? This what's is the part impact... of the lay of the land. Because okay. my understanding of stock is like a stock is, let's say, it's 10 bucks for one stock option. And so if I want to buy it, I'm going to spend $10. But you're saying I could offer 12 and jump ahead of the line and well so if that's available at ten dollars basically what that is talking about is the fact that the front of the line is ten dollars which means that you can jump straight to the front of that line effectively ten dollars is what the price of the head of the counter line is so the price the the trade isn't actually happening you can make a trade happen right now but you could also say i'll buy that stock for 950 and maybe Somebody will sell it to you. Maybe wow. they won't. Right, so continue. how does your software impact that relationship? So what my software does is it says that's that's a nice story, but what's really actually going on is that almost everybody in both of those lines is actually professional traders. And the people that need need to, to sell, it's a little bit like if you're trying to get tickets to a concert that's being dominated by scalpers, what you discover is that you never get there in time. The tickets are all gone. And then you have to go to the scalper to find out what the price really is. And so what my system does is it says, okay, there are actual buyers and actual sellers, and they have a common interest in common price. And then there's also these sort of forecaster, negotiator, hustler folks that have information about what the structure of common price actually is. And so I create a separate market to negotiate a common price that then everybody in both lines that actually wants to trade can trade at. And so rather than a few people trading at one price and then a few other people trading at a different price and sort of averaging all the prices out over the course of the entire day to figure out what the price for the day was, um, what my system does is it lets everybody negotiate what those prices are going to be. And then everybody just trades at that average price for the day, which is on average a lot higher for the sellers and a lot lower for the buyers than what the current system actually achieves. Wow, that's fascinating. Yeah, that's crazy. Like my whole idea of stock buying and investing in NASDAQ has just sort of blown up. <laughs> well, that's sadly something that has actually happened to everybody, although most people haven't noticed it yet, um, because a lot of this shift towards most of the market being dominated by these central players is the result of computer technology that we've been introducing into the financial system since late 70s, early 80s, somewhere around there, uh, which have allowed the, the wealthy inside players to take on significantly less risk in their trading strategies, which means that they can employ significantly riskier trading strategies, which leads to the markets becoming less stable. Um, and then that makes the retail players more willing to take worse deals, which causes the entire financial system to grow as a segment of the economy, which is what we've been seeing since the Carter administration. And what's damaging about that? 
well, uh, because energy you spend figuring out what to do isn't energy that you spend doing things. Um, so, uh, the, the, the financial system isn't innovating new forms of, uh, of economics. We're still trying to, you know, get food from farms to, to grocery stores. We're still trying to get oil out of the ground and into our gas stations. We're still trying to get electricity out of, out of the power station into our house. Um, and so if it used to take, say, a nickel out of each dollar, then, and then it starts taking 10 cents out of each dollar, then basically everybody is a nickel poorer per dollar spent uh, to get the same kind of outcome happening. We've had a result of the markets the, for the stocks and the, and the bonds and the things that those companies trade. Uh, yeah, exactly. Um, it's the, basically va- corporate valuation that does this process. Uh, that's, that's a big piece of it these days. Yes. Um, so in the industrial revolution, one of the major reforms that had to happen was the landowners who were the sort of feudal aristocracy, uh, needed to have their land power broken because otherwise, as you built new factories, they would just charge you for all of the profits of those new factories. Um, and so f- we have seen in agriculture, for example, a 10x increase over the course of the last quarter century in per acre productivity uh, across basically every kind of, hmm. every kind of, you know, food stuff imaginable. Um, and you still hear stories about the failing family farm and farm profits haven't really improved in that time period. Well, all that productivity gain has been chewed up by various service providers and financial industry encroachments uh, that have basically been able to figure out that that surplus was there and and charge rents to take it. Yeah, so things like... Uh, how much it costs to get your tractor in terms of buying the money, how much you pay in, um, you know, fertilizer fees, feed fees, transportation fees, you know, horizontally structured companies can leverage their positions to take up little slices of each of those pies. Right. Is that kind of what you're saying? That's yeah, that's a, that's a very big one. Um, A dramatic example exists in the beef industry uh, where, the industry is effectively dominated by a handful of companies that have completely aggregated the slaughterhouses. Um, and so they, they've done so well that they've essentially just relegated the actual beef markets, which still sort of exist as, as a kind of a sideline. Um, and as, as a result of that, there was an incident several years ago where, um, there was only a single contract traded in a day. That one contract moved the entire marketplace by, I believe it was over 10%. And that caused the market trading to be suspended for several months uh, while people sort of figured out what was going on. So, you know, like imagine if 
one person sold one share of stock on the New York Stock Exchange and the Dow Jones Industrial Average moved by 300 plus points. Um, What what sort of impact would that have on on the general economy? So Uh, does your software level the playing field for the common buyer or the commons? Absolutely. So the entire point is that what we've been seeing is a spread between the productive parts of the economy. So uh, we've got factories and and mills that require raw inputs, and then we have people that produce those raw inputs. And, and both those factories and those raw producers are becoming radically more productive, but our economy is not growing at the rate of their increased productivity. And that's because the the business of connecting those two has become radically more profitable or revenueable um and that's actually led to significantly less productivity across the entire economy so what you're saying is the middlemen are bending us over and wrecking our country uh yeah <laughs> <laughs> All right, so is Core, it's your company, Core Disk. Core, Core, Core Disk, Coordinated Discovery Marketplaces. Core Disk, and is it up and operating right now? Uh, so, as as you said, this sort of is wrapped around a patent application. Uh, what I do is I license this technology to people who could actually create marketplaces. Um, there are three people scattered around the world that are attempting to create marketplaces that incorporate this technology. Um, there's a handful of other people I'm having conversations with. Um, there's a few other interesting opportunities, and I basically spend my days prospecting for other interesting opportunities. But sadly, no current CDM is in operation. So if who would be your ideal partner that might be listening to our show? Uh, well, I'm not quite sure what your demographics are, but the CME group is far and away the number one partner. They are the primary provider, uh, provider of commodity market technology and commodity markets themselves on planet Earth. Um, and my product is sort of 300 lines of code that could be integrated into their system in a matter of weeks. And and could be put in front of prospective customers, uh, you know, within days after that. Uh, but any kind of uh, broker dealer or market maker um, or somebody that's got a industry association that would like their industry to become profitable uh, is, is a potentially interesting person to talk to. Got it. So, this is all built on a algorithm. Is that correct? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's that oh. algorithm of figuring out how to value the various negotiation positions in order to, to pre-compute that daily average and then settle those interests at that average. So for the people who haven't already left the conversation after 15 <laughs> minutes of this, uh, we all talk about 
the algorithm in terms of social media, mostly in this kind of country. And, you know, we blame the algorithm as if it's some kind of entity, some kind of being. But um, I'm old enough to have had to compute square roots via algorithmic um, computation. But I'm wondering if you could explain, you know, in layperson's terms, what an algorithm is and what its basic function is. The simplest way to think about algorithms, um, and this is a bit of a simplification, but uh, cookbooks. Uh, the recipes in cookbooks are algorithms for producing outputs. Now, the thing that makes the, the computer term algorithm a little bit more sexy and, and important than that is that computers are very special machines that can take in these recipes and behave like the machine the recipe describes. So imagine if instead of having a kitchen and a person who can read and maybe make a few guesses, you had a box in your kitchen that like a, was like a bread maker, but sort of on steroids, and you could show it a couple pages of the joy of cooking and it would turn itself into a machine that made creme brulee and you showed it a couple of different pages and it would turn it into a machine that made, uh, you know, turkey dinner. Um, Isn't there an element with this allegory that you could show it 2000 recipes for pumpkin pie and it would figure out which one had the best response and why and conglomerate all this information and create the best pumpkin pie. So that's, that's an interesting question that might be true. And this is certainly what the people who are using the term algorithm in, in social media are claiming that they have achieved, but that is, that is a claim to artificial superintelligence. And the production of stable artificial superintelligence is something that's quite ephemeral. I personally, that I'm claiming that my algorithm produces that outcome. Um, and I'm, and I further claim that other previous claims, like for example, the Google search engine, um, or the existing markets themselves, which are in fact executing, uh, a super intelligent algorithm, or at least used to be before. We computerized it and broke them, uh, are unstable. And so they aren't capable of, of performing that task. Do you see AI and blockchain as entering into the realm of your direct, um, patent that you're working on? So blockchain is independent. Uh, one of the people I'm working with is blockchain interested. Uh, some of the people I've talked to are also blockchain interested. Uh, but I have, I have some very different opinions about blockchain. I'm pretty upset about SBF since he's, you know, being billed as the genius that's revolutionizing global finance. And that's me. Uh, he's, he's never done anything impressive. Um, so <laughs> So, you He's know, all your kind, thunder. Of, kind of poisoning the well, if, if you will. Um, so, so that's, that's one thing. Um, in terms of AI, I actually have a show with the former Reddit of, uh, Reddit CTO, uh, Marty Wiener called the fourth age. We've got seven episodes out where we're talking about AI and it's, 
probable and possible effects on society, politics, economics, and so on. Um, so I think that's a very interesting and relevant question. Uh, and it's something that we need to come to grips with because computers are mostly breaking our civilizational institutions uh, because those institutions were were created without the conception that computers would even be possible. How is they? How are computers breaking our institutions? Well, as, as I was describing, uh, our system is based around a competitive concept of opinion, uh, where first come, first serve, and opinions can be punished or rewarded based on their relative merits to the the sort of global mean. But computers uh, move quickly enough and can operate sort of broadly enough to allow individuals to de-risk themselves so they can still gain the benefits of, of being uh, right when they're right, but they can also benef- gain the benefits of being right when they're wrong because the risks go away um, if you if you can play the game big enough and smart enough and computers give us the ability to play that game at that level are you able to give a direct example of that how someone would be benefiting though they are wrong um yeah yeah absolutely uh so the global wheat markets really didn't anticipate uh, the out, outbreak of the Ukrainian-Russian conflict, and that pretty rapidly restricted global wheat supply. They're some, they're two of the top five producers on Earth, um, and so the market suddenly increased in price to a, an extreme degree. Uh, but that price increase did not filter through the marketplace to the actual farmers. Uh, because the financial markets were adroit and quickly quick enough that the traders were essentially able to get the scalpers got all those tickets. Um, and so in spite of the fact that the traders didn't know that that was going to happen and didn't get on the right side of trades to to get that, they were still able to suck up all of that that windfall. I mean, damn. So the wheat farmers weren't able to obtain contracts at the new purchase price, and they were forced to sell at the the lower contracts. As part of their hedging, they were effectively locked in at previous ones. Yeah, so it's a, it's a stat I've mentioned before, but in response to, uh, like I said, two of the top five wheat producers on Earth shutting down, uh, Canada and the United States, who are, you know, number one and number two in some order, uh, Increase total wheat production by zero acres. <laughs> so this this brings us into the point of the question that I think Greg was trying to ask earlier, which is, do you think that there's an actual conscious plan that is afoot to continue to consolidate these markets and exert a kind of colonialism over the means of capitalization? on uh, commodities? Um, Maybe not quite in the sense that you mean it, but um, these marketplaces are operated by 
mm, excuse me, public companies. Uh, and those public companies have CEOs whose conscious plan is to grow their, their industry. Um, and it is a structural property of the existing market design that the biggest wins and that's all there is to it. So for example, there are regional marketplaces. France has its own commodity markets and there's a French butter market and there's a used to be Wisconsin, but now it's all in the Chicago basket. There's a Chicago butter market. And when France and Chicago disagree about the price of butter, it's because France is wrong. And they change their mind and say that butter costs whatever Chicago says it costs because they're the global benchmark. Um, there are iron markets in the United States. There's an iron market in London. Uh, when Pittsburgh and London disagree about the price of iron, it's because Pittsburgh doesn't know anything about iron in spite of being the steel city um, because London has the global benchmark for that marketplace. And so that there's a, there's a natural property of these markets that leads to that kind of thing um, that has linked up with political interests that are trying to increase the sphere of influence of the EU and England and the US and, and other entities like that that see part of their action as economic. And that also combines with companies that, you know, want their stock numbers to keep going up. So their, their bonuses show up at Christmas. And so um, – I see it as a confluence of, of certainly conscious willed design, but also a, a lot of confluent interests that are being herded into a direction by a technology that hasn't been particularly well understood and uh, which has radically amplified the amount of wealth and power that people who are in particular positions within society have been able to skim for themselves. Is this radical increase of profitability um, hand in hand with the gap that's happening with upper administration and CEO salaries and your hourly labor person? Uh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, there's a, there's a fairly famous chart. Um, that you can probably find without too much trouble, uh, where they track U.S. compensation and productivity curves since after a little after World War II. And those two curves, uh, basically head up at about a 45 degree angle until the early seventies. Um, and then productivity continues to increase at a pretty decent clip. Uh, and hourly comp average hourly compensation starts increasing at about uh, a 10 degree angle after that. Um, and so that, that divergence, of course, is significantly wider today. Uh, and as the financial system got bigger, some of the stuff that it has been doing in order to continue to get bigger is coming up with new ways to create financialization products around other things like corporate compensation, which is now primarily a matter of financial interest with, 
you know, even relatively small companies using some kind of stock options or LLC points or something like that as part of their thing, implicitly gaining a foothold into the financial system. Uh, housing valuation uh, and the whole, you know, big short thing, uh, turning turning houses into bonds and those bonds into casinos and those casinos into slaughterhouses, basically. Um and that that hasn't stopped uh one of the one of the big pushes that we're seeing post covid is a lot of ceos talking about how how awful it is that people aren't coming back into the office and how people got to get back into the office and productivity sucks now that people aren't in the office well and a non trivial part of of the wealth of the system is encumbered in uh commercial real estate and when CDOs blew up, uh, the financial system confidently started selling CLOs, uh, uh, in not, not collateralized debt obligations, but collateralized loan obligations. And loans and debts have nothing to do with one another. Of course um, not. <laughs> largely operating around the commercial real estate space. Um, if it turns out that, say... 10% of American workers aren't ever going back to office buildings, then office space is worth a lot less than it ever was. And if it turns out, which it has, that virtually all of office space is operating through some sort of collateralized loan systems of support, uh, then if the actual equity value of the assets collapses, uh, which, like I said, just 10% would do it, and it might be closer to 50, um, then an enormous structure that I really have no idea how big it is would collapse with it. So in the past, regulatory um, laws that helped us you know, basically take away monopolies and, and this the corporate consolidation process operated nationally. And since most corporate powerhouses are now multinational, do you think that your algorithm could kind of help leverage against that kind of structure? Or is it more about just bringing more trades to a um, greater group of people? Uh, so the... The wealth that you gain from these large-scale consolidations uh, would, would, within my system, in order to be maintained, have to actually come from the system as a whole actually functioning better. And so, once again, with financialization, we can see a lot of pretty easy-to-see examples. Uh, you know, Amazon has a movie studio. Disney's... Five biggest properties are all things that it bought from other places. Um, so, so we're seeing a lot of highly successful companies or formerly highly successful companies. Disney seems to be taking a beating in the stock market recently. Uh, that got there by buying up a bunch of companies rather than being really, really good at whatever they're doing. Uh, the top banks, all the top banks got to be top banks by buying a bunch of other banks. And they haven't really done a particularly good job consolidating. Um, one of the lowest price ways to move money around uh, is the what is ACH transfer. 
that's a regulatory thing. And as part of the regulations, uh, I believe that the clearance is allowed to take up to a week. Um, now, if you do an ACH transfer at a small local bank, what you'll discover is that it will typically take a few minutes. The reason that there's a regulatory window of days and not seconds is because large banks, in order to do ACH transfers, need to do possibly serial ACH transfers through their still existing subunits of the banks that they've bought. And because some of those banks are operating with technology bases from five or 10 or 15 years ago when they were bought, and they've never actually been changed in any meaningful way, the overhead cost of dealing with those internal structural difficulties uh, basically wipes that out. Um, the reason those large companies can exist with those kinds of inefficiencies is that the modern system gives big players very lo- great access to cash and credit through these these sort of advantage to bigness type situations that exist within our financial system. So yes, if if my system starts going and rapidly becomes dominant, uh, large players will need to be be significantly more efficient than small players rather than just significantly bigger. Uh, some of them might be able to achieve that. Uh, there's, there's no specific reason that it isn't possible to be big and good, um, but there's not a lot of evidence that any of our existing big players are also good players. Hmm. So is a Bitcoin blockchain-style exchange – considered a commodity to you? And do you think that that um, kind of exchange changes the game of velocity, as you just described it, in terms of transfer of value? So actually, no. Um, Bitcoin and is is essentially a currency and and as a it's essentially being valued as a currency. And so that a currency is specifically exists to be recirculated. Um, and so my system is not a great fit for recirculating things because uh, it's difficult to separate the knowledge interest from the trading interest when you're going to be on both sides when everyone's going to be on both sides of every trade, which in a currency scenario, that's the way it is. Sometimes you're spending money. Sometimes people are spending money on you. Um, you want price, you want the money to be cheap when it's being handed to you and you want it to be expensive when it's being handed out. And so that, that becomes a very volatile system. Um, Bitcoin itself, I fear is, it, is attempting to solve the wrong problem within the financial system. The the, the Bitcoin is sort of an outgrowth of the gold bug people, the, the folks who have recognized that currencies are not particularly reliable, which they are not, uh, and said, okay, but our, our core institutions are fine. If we just had a functioning currency, these markets would work okay. Unfortunately, I'm here to tell you that the mathematics of the existing markets are actually broken. And so plugging functioning currencies into existing markets gives you broken marketplaces, um, whereas fun- plugging broken currencies into functioning markets gives you functioning marketplaces. So my system 
while it would work better with sound currencies, uh, which Bitcoin has not yet established, um, it will still work with unsound currencies and existing markets will continue to fail even if we establish sound currencies. So uh, I think, I think I've got the important part of the stick um, and I encourage people that want better, better financial systems to come play with me. And if as part of doing that, they would like to establish stable working currencies, I am all for that. You just said that the mathematics of our current market is broken. Is that correct? Yeah. The math and the physics of current markets is broken. The math is the thing that I've been going over so far where the, the ability of the marketplace to punish behaviors that destabilize it is diminished to effectively nothing by the existence of computer technology. Uh, the physics, um, that, that, line first come first serve type of idea as the fairness mechanism means that the markets rely on time being an objective universal metric and since einstein we we've known that that isn't the case so one of my standard things is have you ever like used or benefited from gps and turn by turn directions because that system has to take into account Einsteinian time dilation in order to function. And markets need Einsteinian time dilation not to exist in order to function. So, you, you know, one of those two things can be a working piece of technology. Would you care to guess which one you think it is? All right. So, Noah, there's, I'm curious. Right now, as I understand it, if I buy Apple stock this morning right now, and that trade goes through, I own that stock right now. Yeah. And what I'm understanding with your, what you're presenting is if I work through your system, I buy Apple stock right now. And at the end of the day, your system's going to go through all the trades, the purchases and the sales and figure out, okay, here's today's market price of Apple. Greg, this is what you actually received. Is that? It's the other way around, really. But uh, so the, if if you were to build an Apple trading stock for CDM, the way it would work is there would be a marketplace that was figuring out what the price of Apple stock was. And so it would it would be advertising what today's price is, what tomorrow's price is, what next week's price is, next month, every day or every few hours, depending on how quickly Apple needed to be traded for whatever reason people need to trade Apple. Um, into the indefinite future. So you could, you could speculate on where the price of Apple would be in 15 years if you wanted to. Is and that how shorting system- comes in? Like the market saying Apple's going to be $20 in a month. And I say, no way it's going to be 12. Yes. Yeah. So that would be, that would be part and parcel. Uh, um, if, if you think that the current market aggregate opinion is wrong or right in, and wrong in the direction of being too high or too low, um, you can potentially make money within my system by letting the market know what your opinion about the future is and placing a bet to that effect. And that would uh, give you a share in the outcome of the markets on the times that for which your speculation becomes a part of the, the market 
in price. And so what happens is that today there's no negotiation. There's just a price. There's the result of all of the previous speculations that have been integrated together. And so the the market just says, yeah, today, this is what Apple sells for. This is what Apple buys for. And so what you would do is you'd say, oh, okay, well, no, I want to buy some Apple. Um, that's the share price. Give me five shares. And other people would say, yeah, that's the share price. I want to sell some shares. I've got, you know, seven. And what the market would do is simply take on board those desires to trade and aggregate them and basically say, okay, Greg, your five shares. You got two from that guy, one from this guy and two from that person over there. Does your system create the ability to add leverage to price swings if someone particularly emphasizes one end of the spectrum or not? So the leverage actually exists within that secondary market. Um, So what happens is that the money that you spend to integrate your opinion into the system is pause and mutual. So it goes in to the kitty and then commissions from the trades that are generated by those that information also goes into the kitty and your share is determined by how much of the information you provided is resident in the final answer um and so what this means is that effectively every speculative action you undertake is leveraged across the entire marketplace. So you are effectively paid by every single trader that engages in trade for any day or hour or week or whatever time slice uh, of your interests. Um, and so that, that provides radically higher rates of return for, for people in that position. But do puts or put pressure on the market if I want to put like a low bid in or does your system mitigate the pressures of those sorts of contract offers or does it enhance them? So let's say, let's say you think prices are going to go lower uh, in six months. So you put something in and opinion generally doesn't go with you. So, um, your system, your thing goes in, it records that you tried to lower the price, uh, and people disagree with you, and so they drag the price back up. Okay, well, but it's not six months from now. So you could every single day go in and do that same thing, and maybe that same thing would happen to you every single day. And if six months from now, it turns out that the price that's being negotiated for then is where people thought it was when you started doing this and then trade occurs and it's all fine, then you were just wrong. And, you know, all the money you spent on doing that is gone, much as if you, you know, speculated and gotten short squeezed or whatnot. Uh, however, if it turns out that you're correct, um, either whatever you saw starts to coming into common uh, parlance, or you simply publish your research and say, "Hey, look, you know, I'm, I'm already in. Here's what's going on," and everybody's like, "Oh, okay." The 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 herd sort of follows you, uh, whatever it is. However, it happens that six months from now you're correct. All of your information is now in at full value, and you've got a six month 
lead time causing your time value of capital to compound. And so you will receive an extremely high rate of return for being the the bell ringer for the emergency and sort of letting everybody know what was going to happen. Got it. Is that what happened with the whole GameStop thing? Is that the big guys were saying, oh, this thing's going to fail? So, and the- game, yeah, GameStop is, is yet another demonstration of sort of how the market is currently broken. Uh, and it's a very public one. So there's, there's nothing particularly special about what happened at GameStop in general terms. The algorithms have been able to, to behave that way and have been behaving that way for many, many years. But with the, the combination of Robin Hood and people being bored with COVID and having money in their pockets, uh, there is a vast influx of retail investors. And of course, combining that with social media, allowing for very large scale coordination of behavior, exogenous to the marketplace, uh, it was able to be developed a very large anomalous signal into the marketplace. And as it happened, there were some companies that got pretty severely wrecked um, by their inability to anticipate the nature of that anomalous signal. And there were some individuals that got pretty seriously, uh, you know, benefited by being able to see that anomalous signal coming. Um, but that's just, that's just part and parcel of how the, the existing market function operates. There's no interest in an underlying economic gain. There's only an interest in, in being in a position to have a counterparty that's wrong. Hey, Noah, I think we're having internet. Is anyone at Mark? Are you seeing that we're having internet? I'm good, but what I suspect is uh, Bluetooth interference or something because you're something about the way that your speech you're, is coming. You're a little choppy, Greg. I am. Yeah, but Greg and I are not choppy to each other. So that would tend to indicate that there's some kind of uh, data transfer issue on your end, Noah. So um, I'm really loving this conversation and all, <laughs> of, uh, all the hours of Bloomberg that I listened to have really helped me ha- be uh, you know able to discuss these issues with you. Um, I'm grateful for that. And I want to move into a little bit more personal realm. Is that okay with you? Well, let's wait and see if he um, yeah, is able to solve the technical problem. issues. So I'm yeah. killing snap processes, but I need to be really careful because one of them is this exact conversation. <laughs> right. So we don't want to lose you. All right. So my what I said so was – So I don't want to lose to... this one. Got it. Thank you. What I asked was if it was okay for us to shift towards a little bit more of the human side of your life and the personal side. Are you up for that conversation? Sure. Why not? So as an entrepreneur and someone who builds – technology, what's the impact of your workload on your personal relationships? Um, I don't have many personal relationships, actually. Uh, so I've got connections to my family. Uh, uh, I live in my hometown, uh, you know, so my, my parents, uh, they're divorced, but they live across town. I see them on a regular basis. Uh, but I basically just 
sit around and think about math as my day-to-day existence um, and and do reading and science fiction, although that, that's been ameliorated pretty heavily by my need to sort of get out and about. Uh, so this... This particular project is essentially the only reason that I even have relationships with people. And do you feel joy in the way your life is currently happening? Um, it's a little stressful, actually. It was way more fun, um, like thinking about things that were real and, and learning. Um, and it's a lot less fun, uh, trying to explain to uh, uh, people in corporations and governments that the words that just came out of their mouth are meaningless gibberish and that they should change everything about themselves as a result of that. Got it. Wow. And do you miss, um, say, the companionship of a partner, a romantic partner? Um, I don't know. Uh, I never even pursued such a thing. Is is the line of questioning that I'm on now uncomfortable and something you'd like to stop? <laughs> I don't care, really. Um, Great. I'm, I'm fine either way. The intention behind it is to, to connect to the human being behind the brilliance. Uh, you know, that's part of what we do in the podcast is we find that that element of human people that is the common denominator. And the conversation so far is fascinating. And your devotion to your project and to your principles and to your vision for what you're creating is really amazing. And I'm just really curious now about the the human experience you're having. And I'm trying to do that in a way that isn't um, caustic or creating a discomfort for you. Okay. Yeah. Well, I'm basically fine. Um, yeah. I grew up uh, here in Charlottesville on a dead end street that didn't have a lot of kids in it. Um, I'm the oldest of six children, one of whom was close enough to sort of play with. And I've been a loner for as long as I can remember. Um, well, maybe not quite that long. My first memory is my brother being born. I don't really recall myself as feeling like a loner as a two-year-old. Uh, but, uh, from the time when I was four, which is more or less where my sort of continuous memories begin, um, I spent a fair amount of time reading, always wanted to spend a certain amount of time in isolation, uh, School, I actually wound up starting school a little late. I think uh, the records for my vaccinations weren't properly done or something like that. And so um, I, I wound up starting in school about a week later than, than normal. But, you know, you're not missing much in kindergarten. Uh, and uh, had a handful of friendships in elementary school, several of whom moved away uh, as a result of the way I am, uh, I wound up not really taking very many classes with children my own age, uh, as particularly as tracking sort of picked up. I, I was part of several pilot programs to accelerate people. Um, and so I was in sort of multiple grade levels at once. Um, and so that kind of fractured the, the social picture around me, uh, to some extent, uh, and, and, and starting in 
seventh grade, uh, I started bringing a book to school uh, because I was typically well ahead of whatever class I was in, regardless of whether it was at or above grade level. And so I would, I would just read for pleasure during school hours. Um, and, and then occasionally like come out and pass a test. And, uh, that was, that was sort of elementary school, uh, college. Uh, I went to UVA. I started going to UVA again because of the aforementioned things. I started going to UVA while I was in high school. Um, as a full-time student, didn't really form that many attachments. Um, I got into, there was a, there's a long running board games club at UVA, which more or less adopted me as their token student. Uh, most of the people in that, in that group were, uh, from town and were, some were alumni, but were most, mostly considerably older than, than college students. And, uh, that was fun. And, uh, one of them wound up getting my, my first job. Um, the mentor that was assigned to me at that job, uh, uh, I followed him and many others from our company after one year, that company folded and we're all laid off. I moved to another company, uh, at that company. I found out that that particular mentor was, uh, my next door neighbor, through my backyard, but still. Um, and so we, we became pretty good friends. Uh, but that's, that's sort of it. Uh, and so just sort of as an example, uh, one of the things I started doing at the beginning of my journey, uh, to get this idea into the world, uh, was using LinkedIn as a connections resource. Um, at that time, I believe I had 113 connections on LinkedIn. I had worked with somebody at one of my former companies that was a sort of early adopter, and I had accepted incoming invitations from people that I'd worked with at, at several different locales for, for you know about a decade at that point. Uh, I currently have around 7,650 connections on LinkedIn, um, and that's just going out, getting in front of people, getting connected, using my existing connections to leverage into other connections and so on. Um, so yeah, I didn't really have much to say to people about things. And so I didn't really say much to people about stuff. Well, you don't seem repressed. You seem like you have a lot to say. Um, I want to well, ask you now, now I've got a system that will significantly enhance human wealth and provide us the potential to have, an economy. Yeah, now I have something to say. Awesome. So now that you've built this and you're working on getting it, it seeded properly and then blooming in the human experience, is there something else that you want to build? Do you have the sense of that there's another thing that's, you know, sort of gestating in the creative process for you? Um, not in that sense, I, I get this question from time to time and, you know, like, what do I want to do after I double the human economy? Uh, I don't have a plan for that. I'm sorry. Like, I'm just, I'm just trying to get this one done. Um, but I, I am my, my actual interests and, and hobby lies in the direction of computational mathematics. And so, uh, for some time now I've been, 
exploring ideas around the Euclidean plane versus uh, symbolic uh, uh, arithmetic. And I'm specifically fascinated by the apparent disparity between the simplicity of geometric multiplication and complexity of symbolic multiplication. Um, and in view of either finding radically better algorithms for multiplying things or uh, breaking some foundational assumption of Euclidean geometry uh, and falsifying it. it. Sounds like a fun puzzle to try and solve. Damn. It's a lot to think about, um, and that's what I'm mostly looking for. Did you find that your academic life nurtured you being in that environment to have the capability to really explore the realm and mastery of math you currently have? Was academics an important piece to that journey? It was it was definitely useful to have that exposure. Certainly. Um, I, I was sort of like a kid in a candy store at, uh, at college. I was in the engineering college where you're supposed to sort of buckle down and, and approach one specific major, but through a variety of factors, I just wasn't, that didn't happen to me. Uh, so I, sort of wandered around and took classes that looked interesting or followed professors that I'd had a good time learning from. And as a result of that, I have a very broad knowledge of, of different mathematical disciplines, um, much broader than really virtually anybody I've ever encountered. Uh, and that seems to result in a lot of insights that, that a lot of people just don't wind up noticing because they haven't taken the time to study calculus and game theory and, uh, and information. So what do you place the odds of uh, multiple century evolution of humankind at right now? Like 500 years, are we still going to be around? Uh, I'd say it's fairly likely. Yeah. Um, uh, I see no future for the the systems and institutions that presently exist. Um, that's that's not going to happen. Um, like, what do you think the timeline for their demise is? Uh, lifetimes, like like existing lifetime. Uh, you know, the markets have already failed on multiplications, and they're getting worse, and they're going to keep getting worse for as long as our technology improves. And if we break badly enough that we can no longer improve our technology, then it will get even worse, even faster than that. So that they don't have a future. Um, most governments on earth currently rely for their legitimacy, the economic well-being of their people, something that is a side effect of market function, which doesn't exist so they don't have a future either um uh, and uh and culture does that make similar. you a prepper um not particularly I, I i don't think that that's a viable way to cope with a dark age um Got if it. that's what's going to happen i'm 
I'm out here trying to build a future, uh, and I'd like people to come in and build that future with me because there's no such thing as a solo future. Humans aren't immortal. Um, so yeah, I think, I think that we have enormous capacities and if we build systems that can channel those capacities into mechanisms that benefit the, the people that build those systems, then we will be a, you know, if you explained to a no a 16th century nobleman what the lifestyle of a 19th century peasant was, um, he wouldn't be capable of believing you. Uh, and and certainly a 20th century peasant would so greatly exceed the the most that he could aspire to. Uh, I think that's kind of that we could have in front of us. But the alternative is, you know, a dark age. I have a question here. Do you think that chaos is a part of a healthy system, or do you think a healthy system is eliminating chaos? So, uh, a book right over there on dynamic systems. Uh, So when I hear chaos, I'm thinking in terms of dynamic systems. And I think that uh, chaotic dynamic systems is an inevitable feature of the universe. So any attempt to create a system which denies the physical and mathematical realities of chaos is is doomed to failure as a system that denies that gravity exists. Um, (laughs) However... In order to actually build things and have a tomorrow, there has to look like there's a tomorrow. And so <laughs> managing chaos is a necessary quality of systems that will have a future. And but isn't, that's. Isn't it an innate quality of chaos that it's unmanageable? No. Like dynamics, doesn't dynamics come from an unmanageable aspect of the universe? Uh, not at all, in fact. So it turns out that we can, that chaos has a characteristic behavior. And we can sort of define those characteristics through what are known as attractors. Um, and there essentially are stable and unstable and and various kinds of unstable states. So at a very simple level, imagine kind of a a sort of thick leather that can that can carry a certain amount of structural integrity that you kind of toss out and get sort of wrinkles. Um, if you take some marbles and toss it onto them, the marbles are all going to wind up in in dish like structures on that on that wrinkly surface those are going to be somewhat not chaotic but there'll be some sort of humps and if you set a marble on top of one of those humps it would stay there um it just won't if you toss it none of them will wind up on top of any of the humps because it's just too unlikely but there's a third kind of thing that can happen known as a saddle so you could imagine sort of two humps that have something down between them but that it's is sort of a ridge line between two other dishes. So 
you could also, there's sort of a semi-stable system where you could be at the bottom of that, that ridge line where you'd be at the bottom of one type of thing, but at the top of another type of thing. As your situation and dimensionality increases, the number of ways that things can be semi and partially stable um, changes. But that, that kind of model gives you the basic picture of how to move things outwards. And so within that structure, you could build little ring fences around the tops of hills and turn those into partially stable systems. You could build rail systems along these satellite, you know, ridge systems and create things that would vary but would stay well above these kind of dish positions. Or you can sort of do none of that work and wind up down in these dishes. Um, And so societies are built out of these different strategies to find our way to higher stable outcomes. And, and we have, we have enormous computational tools to enable us to build and maintain and visualize these sorts of stable systems uh, in ways that would remain chaotic, but be observably better virtually all of the time. And that's, that's why there's a visible difference between existing people that live in what we call modern industrial society and other people that are living in – there are people today that live hunter-gatherer, Stone Age lifestyles. Um, and it's a choice. I mean, there's very different kinds of, of civilizations that you can find yourself in. Um, and – Billions of us have chosen the first rather than the second one, and billions of us actually can't choose the second one because the Earth can't support billions of humans living like that. Hmm. Um, so, yeah, uh, chaos chaos contains the seeds of its own controllability. Um, it just it just has certain parts of itself that create. Uh, uh, exponential or hyper exponential unpredictability. Wow. I love this. I want to um, ask you a question because I've come up with something myself that I have just a loose uh, sketch of, and I want you to have it in case you might expand on it or critique it. Uh, I call it democracy 2.0. And the idea here is that we take the American system and we add a ratio of representation in the houses of Congress, a uh, factor of 10 to the 10. And we use data processing and communications technology to manage a system where we have essentially 10,000 senators and 564,000 um, House members. What do you think of that idea just on the surface? Um, so one – there's two there's two issues uh going on with with sort of existing things. First off, there's something known as arrows and possibility theorem. Are you familiar with this? No. So I believe it's Kenneth Arrow uh got the Econ Nobel in the seventies for this mathematical proof. Um it turns out that uh assuming there's five basic traits that he came up with which are pretty unobjectionable for what would constitute a joint decision um, between disparate parties. Um, 
And he was asking the question, given a group that has individuals with their own interests, uh, can is there a decision procedure that they can engage in that produces the group's interest um, in such a way that introduction of extraneous questions doesn't change the outcome, uh, one person doesn't get their way 100% of the time, um, some other ones, I'd have to look up all five of them. But again, they're all relatively reasonable. It turns out that for groups of more than five people uh, answering questions with more than three answers, uh, the answer is no. There is no procedure that can be produced that would allow that group to make decisions in its interests. Um, this is rather devastating to the democratic experiment um, because it turns out that it's simply impossible. Uh, however, uh, enormous progress has been made with stochastic tree search, and there may be a sample approximating factor and your ideas about radically increasing participatory numbers would give us much larger sampling. Um, my personal feeling is that in that direction, the, the, the general move probably should be towards greater juryization, um, where individual juries, of course, not depend upon to be all wise or all knowing, but if the majority of existing or even all existing political and governmental regulatory questions were put to uh, randomly selected citizen juries that may undergo a certain amount of internal self-selection, we would see effectively uh, the the common interest become reflected on a statistical basis in the decision process. Uh, now, the incoherency of such a system in terms of how we would we would communicate with it is, is the fundamental problem. Um, and that, that structure would need to be hooked up to the critical fa faculty of a sovereign nation, which is its military. And I don't have a good solution for how randomly selected juries could organize an effective military system. Um, but uh, but that's so I think you're I think you're in something there. The supposition is that the presidency would still exist. The commander chief would still exist, but the legislative body would be enhanced and the ratio of representation would reduce the impact of non uh, local. It would reduce the impact of lobbying and coercion and um, blackmail on the legislative process. Well, a quick fix for that one, which is, at least as undoable as, as your proposal uh, would be repealing uh, what is it the seventeenth and restoring the senatorial appointments to the uh, to the governorships and legislatures of states. 
And why would that functionally enhance the way we're doing things? Uh, well, that that restores the founders' original intent of giving the Senate and the House different constituencies. Um, so the Senate becomes the specific constituency of the state legislature, uh, which means that rather than lobbying efforts being directed against a senatorial office, they would instead necessarily be uh, directed against the entire public debate of a state legislature. Yeah, I could see that. That makes sense. So repealing the 17th, are you um, willing to consider as part of your future endeavors that this problem is um, of a critical necessity to solve and you put perhaps put your considerable insight and genius against the possibility of solving it? Well, that's part and parcel of uh, why the, the Fourth Age podcast exists, is that I think that we have these issues not just in economics, but also in politics and culture and, and any other institution you care to name uh, within our system. And I'm happy to engage uh, in, in those things. The, the difficulty for me is that the computational mathematics, which is so devastating to these things, isn't a constructive theorem. Um, the, the foundational technique of computational mathematics is a non-constructive impossibility theorem. And so the challenge is creating proposals which do not run afoul of incomputability or impossibility. Uh, and so where my expertise lay is essentially being able to look at something and say, oh, that's broken that's not going to work, um, which isn't the most helpful thing uh, to be able to, to bring to the table, um, but uh, at least can reduce time wasting. Yeah, and solutions generation is a natural outflow of constructing such a, a, a matrix of decision making, because then you, you limit the uh, anomalous possibilities and can focus then on the actual solutions within that range. Hopefully, yes. Um, uh, you know, like I, my, my hope is that when we build ourselves a economy that is flourishing, um, we will be able to use those resources to address other deep problems that, that confront us. Hmm. Got it. Well, I well, think we've taken out, up, uh, uh, enough time. <laughs> yeah. Can you give out the name of your podcast once again? So if people who've gotten this far can really want to find out more and listen to you more. can Absolutely. Uh, it's called The Fourth Age, The AI Revolution, um, and it's on all the major platforms. Uh, I think pretty soon we're going to be on YouTube as well. All right. And um, we do have a question that uh, we've had many challenges with this question where both Mark and I thought this is just a very inappropriate question, but I do give credence to tradition. So <laughs> our final question, sir, Mr. Healy, if you don't mind, Foo Fighters or Eminem? Uh, Foo Fighters. 
Right, that was easy. <laughs> awesome. Thank you. Well, Why? Um, I'm not as familiar with Eminem's work. I think I've heard a handful of his songs, and some of them are moving. Uh, but I've heard a lot more of Foo Fighters. I, you know, I live in a college town, so college radio is basically what's in the car uh, here because because that's just it's a college town. What else are you going to do? Um, so I've heard a lot more of Foo Fighters. Uh, do you appreciate, do you like listening to music just as a way to recreation? Uh, somewhat. Uh, there are a, a handful of songs I quite enjoy. I'm, I'm much more a fan of classical music. Um, uh, things like the, the Brandon Burke concertos. I'm a huge fan of, uh, as well as some Mozart. I, uh, every year I, I make quite a lot of fruitcake for, for my family and some friends. And, uh, uh, last year I spent, it's a two day process. The amount that I make, I, I spent the two days, uh, listening to a documentary on, uh, the ring cycle, which was actually longer than the ring cycle. They, they, wow. they sort of went through practically scene by scene and were explaining the backstory and the mythology and the music. Um, so, uh, you know, I had, I had like 36 hours of, of listening for, for that. So that's, that's, that's more of where, where my, my interests lie there. That's awesome. That sounds incredible. Well, thank you very, very much for your time. I think this is one of the episodes that I'll be listening to a few times to understand what was spoken. <laughs> really appreciate uh, your ability to translate and to communicate your ideas effectively and to engage in the questions we asked you without any kind of judgment or, or sort of superior attitude, your humility. (laughs) Thank you for that. Yeah. Your humility and your gift. I can hear in you the noble spirit of wanting to create better humanity. And for you, I commend you in that. Thank you so much for your contributions and for your willingness to spend time with us. Noah. Are you about to night him? Uh, well, yeah, uh, thank thank you very much for that, uh, and it's it's been a great time. I'm I'm uncomfortable with that characterization. Uh, we didn't get into the Samaritan line, but there's a way to interpret uh, something known as the Kelly Criterion and this particular project that um, completely removes any. Uh, ego or selfishness uh, uh, as, as, as not ex- explanations for, for what I'm doing. Um, this, is, this is simply mathematically the only course of action I can see worth engaging in. Um, and so I'm stuck. Well, I will say, though, that as human beings, we always have choice of action. And I think part of what I resonated with Mark's acknowledgement is acknowledging your willingness to continually to choose an actionable endeavor that has a lot of positive potential. Uh, yeah, thank you very much. Um, yeah, I, 
and I, I continue to search for anyone else that wants to wants to join me. I think there's I think there's a lot of gold at the end of the rainbow. I can take out the trash for you. <laughs> okay, I'm all in. I have some uh, very chaotic, innovative ideas, and I hope we get to talk again, Noah. Yeah, great. Recording stopped. <laughs>